Hello, you're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast, covering all things EFL, Ali Maxwell and George Ellick. Coming to you today from the Travelodge at Birmingham Airport. George, an, an unusual studio for us, but this week is an exciting one for us. Uh, I think a normal company would call it a, a team bonding exercise. We're calling it the AGM and we're off to Spain. Yeah, off brand a little bit, um, off to go and watch Valencia against Chelsea. Um, but luckily on Tuesday night, we've taken about 15 different screens and laptops and iPads with us. So hopefully we'll be able to be across most EFL fixtures on Tuesday. Um, but very exciting to be getting some winter sunshine. Celebrating some former EFL loanees, of course, in the Chelsea team, checking up on them, etc. Today's pod is going to be swift, partly because we've got midweek fixtures across the EFL, mostly in the Championship, but a couple of games in League One as well. In that case, things do age fairly swiftly. So we're going to look at some of the most notable games from each league on the weekend. <clears throat> Starting in the Championship, George, why don't we start at the beginning of the weekend? Fulham QPR, a West London derby under the lights, and we were watching this one. It, well, it didn't end the way it started, did it? QPR straight out the blocks. The first 10, 15 minutes, Fulham looked all at sea. Yeah, Fulham were absolutely terrible for the first half. Um, there have been warning signs coming for the last few weeks, a drop-off in performances, um, was mirrored by a drop-off in results. The 3-0 loss at home to Hull was a, uh, would have set off alarm bells for Fulham fans, who I think were still pretty sure that that was just a blip. But the first 15, I mean, I'd say longer than 15 minutes, the first half an hour of the game, Fulham were very, very poor in possession, consistently giving the ball away, struggled to really make the ball stick at all up front. And the absence of Alexander Mitrovic looked pretty glaring. Uh, Abubakar Kamara was playing instead of him up front, who basically didn't get a kick for the first half an hour until he scored uh, in the 27th minute. I don't and think Dennis Adoy's ever put in a better cross than that in his life. It was life. also the spin as well, which I loved. Um, yeah, incredible uh, skill from Adoy and, and a brilliant ball in, in what was, in truth, their, their first attack of the game. And for QPR, I mean, I was watching that thinking, you know, 25 minutes in, this is QPR's match. Like, they are the better team here. They're going to win. But I think we saw how important it is when you have spells of games against stronger opposition that you take those chances because you aren't consistently going to be creating chances every five minutes. Todd Kane isn't going to keep dragging the ball back to players in the penalty area when he gets to the byline. That's not how it works. And Especially important, George, as well, when you haven't kept a clean sheet all season. Mm. QPR might be the worst defensive team in the league. If you maybe take out Barnsley, it's a different type of dysfunction at the back from them. But QPR are terrible. It's hard to imagine where a clean sheet will come from for this team. That's why you've got to think that you know you have Kamara scoring two goals and then winning the game 2-1, possibly undeservedly. But then you also have Cavalero um, hitting the woodwork. You have Knockhart hitting the woodwork as well. So it wasn't a case of a few chances for Fulham, even though they lost the shot count quite convincingly. QPR consistently so open at the back and you saw how exasperated Mark Warburton were, was at the end of the game because this was another example of his team putting in a very strong offensive performance but still just totally incapable of operating as a, as a defensive unit. The first ball, sorry, the first goal was a fantastic ball from, from Adoy but Kamara was left completely alone in the six-yard box to stoop ahead of home. Which is playing just, three centre-backs as well. I mean, how does that happen? happen? It just shouldn't happen. So um, it's hard to understand. I, you know, you look at the the personnel playing at the back for QPR and maybe it's not a massive surprise that they're struggling to, to keep goals out. 
Um, we know that they have the attacking talents of of the likes of of Easy or Eze. I think we're now saying is the uh, is the pronunciation for Aberry. Um, and Naki Wells up top, and Elias Chair who came off the bench. They have attacking talents, but there's no real championship quality in that back line. So maybe we should expect them to be so poor. Yeah, the the, the attacking recruitment was notable and was being applauded at the start of the season. Perhaps it's start time to start looking at whether they might have gone down a more balanced route when it came to adding players in the summer. There's potentially another conversation to have maybe another day about Mark Warburton and whether his teams historically have ever been particularly strong defensively. Uh, generally a, a good brand of football and decent attacking teams, but potentially someone that, that, that doesn't excel on that side of things. A bit like you know other managers we've seen at this level. Dean Smith springs to mind as well, certainly. Um, but Dean Smith has plenty of help now. John Terry, for example. And you wonder whether that could be something that Warburton looks uh, to do in the future. It, the Fulham performance in the end was the right one in the end they got the results and did the, the result and did what they needed but it, it is worth pointing out that first 15 minutes that first half an hour potentially we hold Fulham to higher standards than 22 other teams in the league barring probably Leeds and I suppose West Brom because of the squad that they have because of the money spent on it over the last few years because of how good they were last time we saw them at this level uh, just uh, two years ago so maybe we are ha holding them to high standards but it's hard for me to think of a time where Leeds or West Brom, who are the current front runners in the division, have had spells of games where they've looked that incapable of keeping the ball and that shell-shocked, basically. And, and to do it at home in a derby, uh, slightly concerning, I think it's fair to say. What else caught your eye uh, this weekend, George? Gary Rowett has had a fantastic start in charge of Millwall. Three wins out of four. Uh, and they'd won just three in 20 before then under Neil Harris, which potentially points to the fact that there was a staleness, that uh, a change that needed. But this Millwall team under Rowett, you know, they're by no means uh, <laughs> transformed. They are by no, by no means dominating games, but certainly the short-term impact he's had has been very impressive. They're into 10th now. Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a perfect appointment so far, and I think it's important for Rowett because... Um, at Stoke, he never really ever got going. Um, similar to Nathan Jones, I guess. Maybe there's something at that club. Although the current incumbent's doing okay, but I'm sure we'll come on to that. But um, yeah, for, for Rowett, it's huge for him to come into a, a job um, where the expectations probably weren't particularly high to start with. Um, so he's blown any uh, thoughts out of the water completely. And crucially, Jed Wallace is quite, you know, he's quite clearly the most talented player that Mill will have. Um, so for for Rowett to have a transformative effect on on Wallace's form is really really important because not only is he should he be their best player is he their best attacking outlet is he their kind of one bit of star quality who you know should be making an impact every week he's also 25 years old and he is someone who you have to feel is a a talent who we haven't seen the best of yet and who hasn't fulfilled what he's capable of and you know, if this is if if Wallace can do this consistently, he suddenly becomes a, a pretty big asset for Millwall, who haven't really had players of that quality coming through recently. Swansea not having the best of time recently. Uh, a couple of very extreme members of the fan base starting to question Steve Cooper that they're in sixth. Idiots. We knew that at the start of the season, some of the results were potentially flattering them a little bit more than their performances. But even so, I think it's worth pointing out at this stage that. Uh, despite 
results catching up with them perhaps recently, uh, given the, the performances. We're still big fans of what Steve Cooper has done, stepping into a really difficult situation, um, not just filling the boots of Graham Potter, substantial shoes to fill, but also having lost uh, key players in the summer, of course, um, and, you know, a work in progress. I don't think there's there's necessarily too much to be concerned about. The only issue is is if there were Swansea fans who got ahead of themselves, essentially, to start the season. It's uh, unbelievably stupid. Unbelievably stupid. There you go. There's well, just, I mean, in, in the last four games, they've won two of them, one of which was a derby win. You know, they, they've got a good point at Hillsborough, which teams haven't really been doing under, you know, since they've been, uh, since they've had Gary Monk, and they've lost a the game at home, which is going to happen. The expectations of this season were not for them to be where they are. And Cooper, as everyone knows, are learning his trade and people who are saying that are morons. Yeah, something I really enjoyed, not a game we're going to touch on in depth, but the Charlton 2, Cardiff 2 game. Neil Harris's first game in charge of Cardiff and they came from two down, a, a miserable first half, you have to say, where they were really just playing the percentages going forward, Cardiff uh, not troubling Charlton to any great extent, but they did come back from 2-0 down. Charlton struggling to maintain a performance for the whole 90 minutes uh, in recent weeks, and the points really starting to dry up compared to the start of the campaign. But notable for Cardiff's first goal from Mendes Lang, the most Neil Warnock goal you could ever see. A lovely homage to their recently departed manager. We also saw Gerhard Struber's first game, Blackburn 3, Barnsley 2. A lot of Blackburn fans furious with their side's performance and that speaks to the fact that Struber, perhaps unsurprisingly, has not been able to magically fix Barnsley's key defensive issues at the back, i.e. giving up very, very simple goals. He has not been able to sort that just yet. Not to say that he can't or won't, but Barnsley, who caused Blackburn problems going forward, uh, just gifted them a few goals to you know it, it says a lot I think when the Blackburn fans are turning furious with the res- with the performance even if they ended up getting the three points there for any Barnsley fans listening um, when I was looking through the teams uh, after the games over the, on the weekend I basically couldn't really work out what system um, Barnsley had been playing due to the personnel it seemed like Alex Mowat was was put out wide that Woodrow was playing a much more reserved role. Um, basically lots of centre-backs and lots of centre-midfielders and lots of wingers on the pitch. So if you could let me know, um, if anyone could tell us what the kind of the obvious changes were that Struber had made compared to the teams uh, under Adam Murray, that would be much appreciated. We were told by our friends on the other Bundesliga podcast, uh, an interview with them that you can hear on our YouTube channel if you search Not The Top 20 podcast, that he was a man who's favoured the diamond formation uh, in his short managerial career so far over in Austria. That would make sense. Maybe that is something that uh, we're working towards here. Um, But, uh, you know, good start from them going forward. Woodrow continues to impress, uh, but plenty to work out for Struber and, and, and Blackburn fans still not sure that Tony Mowbray is the right man to take them, I suppose, to the next level. We've got to talk about Derby here, George. They won five home league games in a row. The last four of them all to nil. Of course, away from home, they've lost the last three without scoring. So clear differences between Derby at home and Derby away from home. But positive signs, uh, certainly in this win against Preston, a fully deserved win where players like Tom Lawrence came to the fore in a way that perhaps he he hadn't been doing to start the season. Dwayne Holmes, excellent. Bielik now establishing himself in a midfield role and playing really, really well. And Craig Forsyth uh, at left (laughs) centre-back. So he's moved inside 
Uh, and again, that seemed to work. That seems to be a change that uh, has brought good performances out of him. So a lot of credit going to Koku here. Chris Martin as well up top. Uh, a lot of the things that he's been doing just slowly over time seem to be improving the team somewhat from what we saw at the start of the season. Yeah, uh, it's no surprise. We said that the, the task he had coming into the season was much greater than most managers will take over a team who lost in the playoff final because of the squad churn. Um, maybe what happened off the pitch, coupled with some very bad early results, made that job even tougher. So it's good to see um, Koku, you know, influencing the team in a positive manner. Um, I said on Sky a few weeks ago that they were the crisis club of the EFL. I was called up on it um, on social media, and rightly so, because as you say, that the home form is very, very good. Um, it's great to see key players. I mean, you mentioned Lawrence and Holmes. They seem to be the two who really came out of of Saturday with uh, in flight with flying colours. Uh, Martin Waghorn came off the bench very early on um, after an injury to uh, Mason Bennett and grabbed a goal. Who's I mean, he's another player who who basically should be an asset for them and hasn't really been for for quite a while now. Uh, we always think of Derby as being a team short on strikers, and the fact is they've got Waghorn, Marriott, and Martin, who all three are. are you know, Martin and, and Waghorn are the more seasoned pros, but all three of them have shown, proven their quality at this level before. So there's no reason why they should be short of goals. And then restricting Preston, who are by no means short in that regard, um, to very few opportunities. And they were very, very good value for their win and their clean sheet. Brentford got a good, solid home win to nil against Reading. Ollie Watkins with another headed goal. Uh, a real centre-forwards goal, you would say, uh, which is notable. West Brom, still top of the league, getting past Sheffield Wednesday by two goals to one. In truth, not a vintage performance. Uh, a lovely first goal. Matty Pereira, my favourite player in the league, assisting Hal robson Carnu, who has, well, he's established himself now as their starting striker, with Austin struggling to find the net from open play. But Charlie Austin came on in the second half and did score the penalty to win it. Sheffield Wednesday with a, a decent performance away from home, I think you have to say. And, and on balance of play, probably unfortunate not to leave with, with anything there. But West Brom march on. And what else is there? Well, George Leeds, they beat Luton. Leeds' uh, tricky run, sticky patch, is, is over to some extent. They've won three games in a row. You're still thinking that they could be a little more... Dominant, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is for the sake of consistency because I've made no secret of the fact that I think this Leeds team are brilliant and I think they're the best team in the league and I think they're going to win the league. But I've called up other teams fighting at the top end of tables, such as Wickham, and criticised them for being you know, unable to dominate teams. I mean, they may dominate... Leeds will dominate a match and they will dominate the opposition, but that will not play out in the, in the, in the scoreline. This was probably another example of that where they had all the possession against Luton. They had double the shots of Luton, had most of the good chances, yet only squeaked through 2-1 after a very, very late Matty Pearson own goal. And Pearson had also been adjudged offside later on. He was offside, but he had scored what he thought was a winner five minutes before. So it's another three points, which is basically by the skin of their teeth um, in a game that they deserve to win much, you know, with ease. And there comes a time where you've got to start to wonder how much this is going to, this, this should be a concern. You look at their results so far this season and their last five wins, they've won four of them by a solitary goal. That's not sustainable. And, and if you think that we, we, we already think that there are games this season where they have drawn matches they should have won, but they're, they're still winning games by fine margins, which probably isn't sustainable. But I still um, think that 
if you were to pick each team in the division's main problem or main issue or great weakness, Leeds's main problem being that they don't win games by the margin that they maybe think they should based on chances created. I still think that's the best main problem of any team in the league. Like, it, it, of course it, it is. Uh, there, there's probably bigger holes to pick in the other teams in the division. And frankly, there was a point where it got so far one way, like, God, they really can't win a game and they concede every two shots on target and they only score every 10. Uh, and that's kind of evening out a little bit. They, they have won these games. They are taking their chances to a greater extent. Yeah, I mean, they've won, they've won three of their last five. They've won three of their last three. So I, I get your point. But my, but my point is more that if they carry on the way they're going, that three out of three probably won't last. It'll, the draws will come back. They need to be more clinical. They need to, when they go one up, go further ahead. Um, I, I can't, given that I, my respect for all the data that points towards them being the best going forward and the best at the back and also how good they are to watch, I can't put my finger on what's going wrong. But I'm, I'm fully of the opinion right now that they need to change the way that they're winning games in order to sustain the current point ratio. Well, we're having a good time on Bamford Island. He was key in this win. Uh, he hit the post. He had a header well saved. It felt like it might be one of those days for him. He won you a few uh, quid, didn't he, as it, well? He won me a few quid as well, which is very kind of him, just <laughs> before we go away. Uh, so a, a great day for Marcelo and Patrick and I on, on Bamford Island. Two more players to point out from that game. Ben White, he's just ridiculously good. It's one of the greatest successes of recruitment at this level that I can think of he might only be a lone player but when you consider that this guy was on loan at Newport the season before last he had some time with Peterborough last season uh, not exactly you know dominating things for those teams necessarily not exactly uh, standing out or so we thought in those teams or within them but someone somewhere at Leeds decided he was the man not only to replace Pontus Janssen but to be better than Pontus Janssen and at this stage you can't really argue with him the, the 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 pleasant part of the whole saga is that Brentford fans absolutely in love with Janssen as well who's playing fantastically well for them in a very good defensive team so I think everyone's come out of this well but Ben White uh, you know I, I was sitting uh, in the Quest studio the Quest office on Saturday with Adam Forshaw who I thought made a fantastic debut as a pundit, who absolutely loves the game, who can talk football uh, as well as anyone I've ever met and hopefully will do on this pod in the future. Uh, and he just couldn't stop talking about how good Ben White is and, and how far he thinks he will go in the game, right to the top, top six Premier League sort of thing. Uh, but Izzy Brown was excellent as well. Had a point to prove, I think it's fair to say, uh, against Leeds and against Bielsa after a tough time there last season. Uh, but playing really, really well. Uh, Michael O'Neill is 2-4-2 two, two with Stoke. Uh, the nice story here, George, was Mame Biram Juf scoring the winner for them. It's only a few weeks since he was outcast, expelled, not involved with the team under Graham Jones, no squad number, all that jazz. Uh, Michael O'Neill doing the classic, uh, bringing people back into the fold and, and, and getting contributions from them. Matt has tweeted in to say, Michael O'Neill, beneficiary of a gentle start or the real deal? And you kind of think, well, he has had a gentle start and we definitely can't say he's the real deal just yet. <laughs> the beneficiary of a gentle start and probably, you know, the nature of variance as well. Um, it's amazing how often 
this happens. Uh, some people call it a new manager bounce, but with Stokes' example, given what we know about their performances, despite the results, this was always likely to happen. And that's not to take nothing away from, from Michael O'Neill, because there's no doubt that he d- deserves credit for the, for the victories that they've got. Even if I, I, I would have to say that a 2-1 home win against Wigan is nothing to get particularly excited about, given that they are. I was going to say, probably the, the worst fixture you can have. Yeah, yeah, in the EFL, pretty much. I mean, we're going to the worst travellers going. So, uh, and they were one 0 down at half time. But you know, I, I guess that's probably the crux of this. Um, this is a, a, a team who've who've shown very little fight over the last couple of months. Of couple of months, I'll say couple of couple of years. Um, we're going to talk in a second about a piece in the Athletic that was written about how they've got to the situation and what really stands out from that piece is just the general apathy at the club and you know to take nothing you know this isn't putting any of the blame at Nathan Jones's door or at Gary Rowett's door but it feels like the the intention and the desire to win from those managers and from other people in the club is just not matched by others who are thinking of other things in the game um, so I think the significance here isn't necessarily Stoke beating a, a, a poor team in Wigan. It's more the uh, the comeback from 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 a difficult position um, and a very very late goal from a guy who has not featured for a long time. Um, I reckon this this manner of win is probably better for them going forward than it would have been to have a regulation 2-0 victory. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they've got Cardiff away on Tuesday night. That will be a larger test. Let's continue on the theme that you were on there. A fantastic in-depth article on The Athletic this week, or just actually at the end of last week. Exactly the sort of thing that we love The Athletic for, really. Uh, A joint affair, Stuart James, Laurie Whitwell and Adam Crafton uh, coming together to dig deep into the fall of Stoke City. Muddled recruitment, no win bonuses for unmotivated players and a stats company hired to assess Jones. I mean, it's a proper opus. It will take up plenty of your time. I suppose the thing for us to do, George, is to A, recommend it, but in expanding on that, pick out some of the most eye-catching parts of that. Essentially, are we starting to see with in-depth analysis of this and with the wider question about teams struggling after relegation from the Premier League, do you think we're starting to see what not to do, how not to do things when you come down? Because the sorts of issues that Stoke had that we've read about in that piece feels like the teams this year that came down, Cardiff, Huddersfield and Fulham, even if they haven't thrived immediately... It felt like there was an understanding that you do not just chuck tens of millions of pounds at the problem because potentially that's not the remedy for whatever the problem is. Exactly. And I think we maybe got a bit used to teams who, I mean, you look at Aston Villa as being a key point where the ownership struggles at the club after relegation were a key reason for their struggle to acclimatise to the championship. Whereas with Stoke, it's kind of the opposite. It was a completely foolhardy means of going about trying to win promotion back to the Premier League. Irresponsible spending. Um, you know, the, in the article here, it talks about the Co- the Coates family wealth is now likely being north of seven billion pounds. Um, I mean, I know that due to FFP regulations, they can't chuckle that at the club, but but it's quite clear to see, and especially given the backing they've given these managers and the money they spent in the transfer window. You definitely can't blame the Coates family of a lack of ambition or a lack of spending. Um, 
in the same way that, that other owners in the past have maybe decided they weren't so keen on owning a football club after relegation. Um, it, interesting, towards the end of the piece, it, it makes the point that Michael O'Neill's job at Northern Ireland was getting a, a group of players to punch well above their weight, whereas he's now takes over at, at a club who've been specialising in doing the total opposite. Mm, that is interesting. Um, because, and that's it, it's a very, very different battle for O'Neill now to take on a group of players who, I mean, it's written in the piece as well about the, the struggle with wage demands between the players and the club, with the club paying the highest wages in the championship and players still expecting there to be significant bonuses on top of their wages and that causing a lot of stress and concern amongst the players, which led to a dip in performances. I mean, it's all going to sound alien to you and I who, who you know, look at how much these players are earning and, and can't really believe it's the case. But um, it, it certainly highlights, I mean, you and I, are a big fan when I'm certainly a big fan of Nathan Jones and um from the outside looking in was pretty convinced that he would get it right if he if he kept kept hold of the job. I'm now not so sure having read that. Mm. It feels like I mean obviously the the underlying numbers were good but it does feel like there is something pretty rotten at Stoke. There's a bit about how at Luton the journey that he went on with those players he was with lower league players who hadn't played higher and who were all pulling together to get to somewhere that none of them had been, whereas the majority of the Stoke squad that he was managing had already been where he wanted to go with them, where they wanted to go. It's frustrating to read things like that because you you want... Well, you just feel a bit bad for, for managers who encounter groups of players like that. If Michael O'Neill, this is what makes me think that he might be the right man. If he can be the motivator the pure motivator before you talk about diamonds formations or whatever if he can be the pure motivator of a squad of players who have lacked nothing more than motivation really as their sort of core issue for two seasons then he could go a fair a fair way can i make a very tenuous comparison mm. i mean this is this is like one of the worst things i've ever said but it also holds <laughs> some truth if you take england for example, who were a consistently underperforming lack of footballers who over time had obvious behavioural issues, obvious issues with their um, with their drive to, to play good football. And there was a manager who came in two years ago. No one thinks that Gareth Southgate is any kind of genius tactician, but all it took was a guy to come in and manage a group of players in, a, in an effective style to cause a complete jump in performance levels. And that is the case here. It, it, as you say, it doesn't. The formation at the end of the day isn't really going to matter. You've got a group of players who are earning the most in the league, who've been their career transfer fees will blitz most Premier League teams out of the water. So all O'Neill has to do, crucially, is to get them harmonious and trying to play football for the benefit of Stoke. Well, you wonder if that's easier said than done. Many men have failed, or two men specifically, since their relegation to the championship the bit about win bonuses was amazing Stoke deciding after losing their Premier League status that there would be no win bonuses paid in the championship the reasoning being that the players were already extremely well remunerated and you can sort of understand that point of view but what they understood very quickly what became very quickly clear was that that is a huge incentive for players it sounds simple it sounds fairly obvious that is a massive motivation and on the flip side, something that causes an issue when it's not there. Something that is so much part of uh, every team, essentially, at all levels, that when it's taken away, that the players just couldn't hack it. Couldn't hack it at all. I have seen 
teams in the past, and I, I don't think it's something that happens too often, but something that I like the idea of, certainly, is not having individual win bonuses within a individual player contract, but having team win bonuses, uh, a bonus system where the team are remunerated, are rewarded for team achievements and successes rather than personal successes, whether that's whether that's essentially giving everyone a reward for the team keeping a clean sheet, even the attacking players, because we all recognise now that attacking players start the defensive efforts, have a big part to play in that. That sort of thing is interesting to me, and it will be interesting to know how many teams at the level do something like that. Uh, anyway, that article was on The Athletic. Uh, it's called The Fall of Stoke. Still is. Still is on The Athletic. Uh, muddled recruitment, no win bonuses for unmotivated players, and a stats company hired to assess Jones. Uh, it's a fascinating read. We would recommend it for anyone who wants to dig a little deeper. Uh, and if you haven't signed up to The Athletic already, you can do so. If you go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20, you will get a option for a free trial and 50% off going forward. So access to a whole host of athletic content uh, and some exciting news being released in the next few days on that note as well. Uh, and you'll be able to get all of that just for a, uh, essentially the price of a pint, depending on where you are in the UK. So theathletic.co.uk forward slash N. TT20. Plenty happened in League One on the weekend, George. I think we should start with the match you were at. South End, League One's worst ever team, nil. Oxford United. League One's best ever team, four. <laughs> League One's current best team, four. Uh, was this a case of Oxford being amazing or South End being rubbish? I feel like I have a good idea what the answer is going to be here. Wickham fans livid with you for saying that Oxford are the best team in the league um, <laughs> yeah Southend were terrible um, but then in a weird way they were also not terrible basically the the, the balance of play it, it, it wasn't a 4-0 game but Southend's best player is probably their keeper and they just they just give away opportunities so freely it was incredible I mean in the first minute Matt Taylor scored after 52 seconds after just being presented the ball eight yards from goal after the the it was 18 year old centre back making his first league start Taylor horrible to watch just squared it to him it was bizarre and then 15 minutes later James Henry well half an hour later James Henry 25 yards out he just passed the ball and he literally just walked into space no one closed him down and then just hit it into the bottom left hand corner on the I, I mean, a couple of chances were missed in the first half and, and Oxford were, were quite clearly the better team. In the second half, at least for the first 35 minutes, Southend were the better team. They they controlled the game. Um, they controlled um, the possession. Cox and Hopper, as we know, are, are good League One players and they looked it as well. Simon Eastwood had to make a couple of really good saves to keep the clean sheet. And then just two bursts forward into the... Oxford genuinely barely got into Southend's final third for half an hour, 40 minutes in the second half, and then twice in two minutes, just just got in and, and uh, Taylor got a second and Dan um, Aguirre got his first goal for the club. Well, so, maybe it's worth not overreacting to this then, you know, well, obvious it, individual it is, errors. But it, it is and it isn't because, I mean, Oxford still had 20 shots in the game. Mm. I mean, which compared to their possession was absolutely mind-blowing. And the reason is because they just completely... I can't say the words I want to say, but the they, defense is they made a mess of they made a, a mess of their, they'd have had to put their sheets in the wash after <laughs> every time Oxford got into the final third. 
Um, <laughs> and it was it was bizarre to see. I mean, Dieng um, was probably the only calming influence at the back, you have to say, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, and uh, Ralph and Bromo, sorry, Bromono showed some attacking um, intent going forward, but both were very, very ropey defensively. Um, I'm perplexed by Southend, and if I was Sol Campbell, I would not really know what to do because it, it, it kind of, yeah, it's just it, it's hard to put your finger on on what you should do because you have a team who are qu- quite clearly capable of doing something going forward, but defensively are like panic stations bad. <laughs> There were a few narrow home wins in the division. Peterborough and Burton. Posh winning 1-0. An absolute screamer from Joe Ward. His second screamer in the matter of weeks. Wimbledon got a valuable three points, beating Gillingham at home 1-0. And Fleetwood getting past Tranmere, who are still really struggling. 2-1 at home, that one. Uh, You had Ipswich drawing at home with Blackpool and Sunderland drawing at home with Coventry, a late winner. Uh, papering over some cracks, I think it's fair to say. The Sunderland fans not happy at all with how things are looking under Phil Parkinson at the moment. We will, I'm sure, go into greater detail in the future. Uh, on Tuesday, we've got Wickham against Ipswich. First v second. Uh, if Wickham can get a result there, they will be looking very, very pretty. They will be very pleased with themselves. Uh, but I think it's probably worth touching on a couple of other results from the weekend. Firstly, <laughs> the game between Shrewsbury and Bristol Rovers. Now, based on these two teams' style of play, based on their uh, formations, based on their strengths, based on who was absent, namely Johnson Clark Harris, this game was meant to be nil-nil or one-nil either way. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Instead, we end up with a with a 3-4 with a brilliant away win for Bristol Rovers, who are treating their away fans this season, it's fair to say. Um, just one of those absurd games that you get every now and again where, it, it, you know, it wasn't particularly end-to-end. It wasn't like both teams were just creating at will. It was more a case of, you know, goals going in from all angles whenever a shot came in, essentially. I think only nine shots on target in the whole game and, and seven goals. A, a brilliant win, you have to say, for Bristol Rovers. Shrewsbury had six shots in the game. Six shots in the game for Shrews. Three goals. They can't believe that they lost because this is a team that normally never concedes more than one in a game and quite <laughs> often none. So uh, a crazy game there. A, a, a comeback win for Rotherham. George MK Nons 2-0 up in this one. And yet as soon as Rotherham got one, you just knew it was coming. I, I, I don't know how a manager, any manager, let alone a rookie manager in Ross, Russell Martin, even begins to think about changing a losing mentality at a time of the season where the games are just coming thick and fast. But this MK Dons have one of the losingest mentalities I can remember. That's an interesting word. <laughs> um, yeah, they do. But under Paul Tisdale, I I don't think there's any chance that this MK Dons team would have gone 2-0 up at home to anybody in the way they were playing. So Russell Martin must have done something right here because um, they were not fashioning any goal-scoring opportunities and Rotherham are are a very decent side. So he's done something right here. It'll be very hard for him to take um, because you have to feel like it would have been a fairly transformative result for them to, to get three points here because... As we keep saying, the league is very weird this season with Bolton's uh, penalty. They're now in positive points, but then you've also got Southend being the worst team we've ever seen. So it doesn't take much. It's not going to take much for a team to stay up um, as poor as, as MK Dons are. 
um, but a bitter pill for for Russell Martin to swallow. But I, if you're a if you're an MK Dons fan, you just appointed a rookie manager who's a bit of a club legend. You've got to be happy that there are signs, at least to start with, that that he's making a change and a positive one. There's three teams in the league that have lost their last five league games: Southend, MK Dons, and Rochdale, who now have ten defeats in nineteen games, but they're still in in sixteenth place. Don't understand that. They are really struggling. They played the a lot of games. A lot of that, they have played a lot of games, uh, more than some of the teams that they are above. Everyone. But that early season form, that early season optimism, starting to fade somewhat. They, despite having more of the ball, unsurprisingly, they often do, against uh, Pompey on the weekend. They barely laid a glove on them. Pompey, to their part, by no means a vintage performance, but took their chances, crucially. That's something that hasn't happened enough this season. Curtis with two good finishes uh, from from crosses from the right, low crosses that he finished well. Um, they're still playing John Marquis in quite a peculiar number 10 role. He is, well, essentially not scoring at all for Pompey this season and he looks ungainly as a 10, it's fair to say, but that's the way that Jacket wants to play, continues to play. Things still not looking great, but the results in recent weeks have not been as horrendous as they were to start the season. They've got a big game against Rotherham on Tuesday night. Rotherham, we should have given maybe a bit more credit to for that turnaround against MK Dons. To have Carlton Morris, Michael Smith and Freddie Ladapo, who scored a brace in the second half to win that game for them. They have got a, a, a riches up top, it's fair to say. And we'll finish on the biggest win of the weekend, Accrington 7-1 against Bolton. It's hard to know really how far to go with this. It's such an eye-catching scoreline, but... As much as any game I think I've ever seen, a red card having the biggest impact you could possibly imagine. So tough for Keith Hill. You go one nil up, maintaining the good form that is kind of firing you back towards a normal position in the league after the after the penalty, and then you have a player sent off after 40 minutes. Chris O'Grady then going off injured after 35 minutes is not ideal for them because, as we know, they don't have much strength and depth. Um, yeah, and a big result for Accrington because we've said for a few weeks now that they're probably the team who are in a bit of a false position, it feels like, in the league at the moment. They've put in a lot of good performances in the last few weeks, haven't got their just rewards. So, and good to see, you know, probably their three key players with a with a trio of braces. Um, and Colby Bishop, who's making a fantastic start to life in League One. Um, Sean McConville and then uh, Zanzala towards the end. So, um, a result that's important for Accrington. I'm pretty sure that... that, that you know, as frustrating as it is, Keith Hill and Bolton won't be looking too um, much into this as, as being a disaster. They'll know that the circumstances went against them. And um, yeah, the fact that they'll take heart out of the fact they were 1-0 up after 13 minutes, I guess. In League Two, you had some of the top teams beating teams in mid-table or below, the likes of Exeter winning 1-0 at Crawley who are on a miserable run at the moment. Crew winning 5-0 against Morecambe. Another game with a, a red card-flavoured asterisk next to it. Morecambe going down to 10 men and Crew making the most of that. Uh, Forest Green beating Orient 4-2. This one was somewhat marred by comments that Ross Embleton said were made by Mark Cooper uh, relating to or referencing Justin Edinburgh uh, in a way of uh, putting down Embleton after a disagreement on the touchline. Um, the, the phrase that was reported is disgraceful. That's absolutely 
undeniable. It should be worth pointing out at this stage that Forrest Green, Mark Cooper, Dale Vince are adamant that the phrase that Ross Embleton said was used was not used. So at this stage, there's so much he said, he said uh, that it's worth pointing out. These are allegations and therefore quite difficult to, to pass definitive comment on. If it's true what was said, was said, then that is pretty disgraceful and you would hope and expect that there would be some fairly strong punishment. Uh, but it, it, it kind of remains to be seen how this one will play out. Swindon won 1-0 with Owen Doyle scoring a 17th goal of the season. He's now scored twice as many goals as anyone else in the division, which is ridiculous. Um, but George, a couple of teams I wanted to touch on that maybe we haven't spoken about loads. Scunthorpe beat Port Vale 2-1. Scunny are... They're not setting the world alight, but given how they started the season, given the pressure that Paul, as good as, given the pressure that Paul uh, Hurst rather was under early on, uh, things starting to get a little bit better. I think they're nine unbeaten at home, and just results turning in the right direction. They're moving up the table. Yeah, they're fifth in the in the last six games form table, um, which is you know they've got eleven points from those games, which is in stark contrast to how they were. Um, going along early on in the season. Um, it's hard to get too excited, again, given there's no way they should be down there in the first place. And this is probably what we're seeing now is about par. And we often talk about how managers um, are too often judged on their own successes. And I'm not by any stretch saying that Hurst was at fault for their early season form. But let's not kid ourselves that a, a return to kind of playoff form is, is anything to get too excited about. This is where they should be. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, great to see them doing it. They seem to have massively shored up the defence, which was the the key issue because they conceded goals for fun early on in the season. Do you think that Plymouth might be on their way after beating Forest Green at Forest Green last week? They beat Bradford on the weekend, probably the most impressive week that any team had in in the EFL, and they're up to eighth. It's all very congested still, but are you feeling quite good vibes about a team you expected a lot from at the start of the season? Yeah, I, I think that possibly that 4-0 loss at Exeter was a good thing now because I think they seem to be far more focused after that. Maybe a case of believing they're in hype a bit because we had this exact conversation before that game where they were on a decent run and looked like they might be trending the, the right way. Um, and to you know, that Forest Green result um, was a massive one because, you know, Forest Green have come out again since with a very good result, the 4-2 win Leighton Orient on Saturday. And, and it does look like now they are going to be one of the teams that we're talking about for a promotion berth towards the end of the season. So that was a huge result. And then again, I'm sure Bradford will probably be top six um, at worst. So uh, it feels like they are currently one of the teams to watch. Uh, I think a question that we're going to talk about quite soon was that, uh, which we'll answer properly later, was which team in the championship do you feel like could go on a run of victories in the second half of the season to get them up there and it feels like Plymouth could definitely be one of those teams who could very quickly be top of the pile and pulling away and Northampton Town are in the midst of a run of victories which has got them up there five wins in their last six league games they're very much in the playoff places now in fifth position uh, very solid breaking teams down this was a, a game against Grimsby that I don't think they necessarily dominated but taking their chances and, and a system of Keith Curl football that we've seen work at this level fairly consistently for the last few years uh, and Northampton roll on. I guess the most surprising result of the whole weekend across the EFL was Oldham beating Newport. This was a game of very few chances. Oldham took one, Newport didn't. Uh, Newport County's form, 
loath as I am to say it, as a massive fan, a boyhood fan, <laughs> not quite, uh, quite poor. Three league defeats in a row. Uh, any any concerns that the league is working them out? That that Mike Flynn's style can only last for so long? We, we've seen other teams struggle after, you know... 12, 18 months of, of a certain way of playing that's effective. Teams do get used to it. <sighs> it's a difficult question because... You, you can just say you don't know. Let's, no, no, but let's it, wait but and it, see. But it, it again comes down to the idea that they're probably still punching above their weight, even playing the way that they are. Um, it w- would be no shock to see them. I mean, three games is a very, very small sample size or four games that we've seen them struggle to um, to get back to their usual form. They're conceding more goals than we're used to. They haven't kept a clean sheet in the league uh, since a 1-0 win against Carlisle back in October. I'm pretty sure that knowing Mike Flynn, that'll get sorted out fairly quickly and, and they restricted Oldham to very few chances on Saturday. So I'm, I'm not going to get too concerned about them. But again, any question marks over the manager are just misplaced because what he's doing there is is, is pretty incredible and um, a mini blip of, of form and a, and a uh, you know uh, inability to keep teams out it's probably going to be short-lived knowing what we know about the club and the, and the manager. Okay, quick fire questions now. We asked for some questions on social media, on Twitter, and you didn't disappoint. Fairly quick fire these. George, you touched on it already. Chris wants to know, there always seems to be one championship team who goes on a massive run in the new year to get into the promotion picture from relative obscurity. You've earmarked Plymouth as a team with the potential to do that. Uh, what about in the championship? Well, I still think that Brentford's are one of the key contenders to win the championship. As I say, Leeds, certainly my favourites, but I think Brentford are, are up there. They're in the middle of a run at the moment of, of five wins from their last six games. Um, and when they're at their best, they're better than, than pretty much anyone. So, you know, it, it's nothing new for me to sit here and say that. Although it is new for me to sit in Birmingham Airport and say it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, they're the current team. I mean, they're current, currently in eighth position. And they are not the eighth best team in the league. They are better than that. Well, Liam asks, who do you think is the most underrated team in the championship in League One and League Two? Uh, in the championship, where are you going for this one? I suppose it depends who is underrating these teams. Uh, there's probably an argument that it's still Preston North End, despite the fact they've been towards the top of the championship, uh, certainly in the last few weeks. I feel like they certainly don't get too much respect from opposition fans and teams, maybe partly down to the style with which they play. A bit of shithousery is, is always levelled against them. And, and, and that the sort of character and personality of their squad maybe doesn't, doesn't endear themselves to some of the opposition. So I think I'll still say Preston Northender in the Championship. What about you? Well, you've, you've kind of just mentioned Brentford. Yeah, there. I think Hull, Hull are the other team that I would like to point at who I think are underperforming at the moment in 14th position and have enough about them to cause any team issues. We saw them beat Fulham 3-0 the other day. Um, And whilst I don't think they're going to put a string of wins together to put them towards the top end of the table, I think they're a team who uh, may be a little bit better than people realise and could well have a good second half of the season to, to put them up there a little bit higher. I think in League One, Burton could be considered to be underrated uh, at the same time results recently haven't been particularly good but they've kind of been a victim of of the strange scheduling at this level they've only played 15 games 
when you bear in mind the team below them, Rochdale, have played 19. That's a, a difference of four. Plenty of teams on 18, 17. There's still, it's still confusing in that regard, League One, at the moment. But Burton have only conceded 16 goals in 15 games. So clearly defensively very strong. The attack hasn't got going, it's fair to say. A very thin squad, as we know. They, 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 they have to get the absolute most out of what Nigel Clough has at his disposal. But in terms of playing style, in terms of being quite difficult to play against, uh, I do think that they're quite an underrated team. Potentially Accrington could be one for this as well, given the position that they're in. I think we both think that they're, they're, they're more likely to move away from that relegation battle than to get within it. Uh, anyone else at a League One level you think is underrated? Bolton. Ooh. I feel like people still think Bolton are the whipping boys. And if you look, they're only, their last two defeats have been... 7-1. 7-1 against, <laughs> against Accrington with a man sent off at 1-0 up after 14 minutes. And a home defeat against Rochdale where they were 1-0 up and ended up losing 3-1 when they were looking for their first win of the season. And it kind of felt like maybe they got a little bit dizzy um, when they went ahead. Um, and I think they're a team who will, in the next, you know, before the end of the year, continue to... Um, spoil a couple of people's parties where to start in league two it's difficult i don't think there are loads of teams at this level that people rate really highly so i it, it to some extent there's teams just not being rated uh, i guess i'm going to go to bat for port vale i've spoken about them <laughs> quite a lot on the betting show but they're in ninth and you know given that they are between plymouth colchester they're above newport um they're only a point or two two points rather behind Bradford and Cheltenham, I think they're doing very, very well. I think Cheltenham might be the answer here, you know. Uh, they're in sixth, but two games in hand over three of the five teams above them uh, and have had a very tricky run of fixtures, but they've only lost three of their 17 games this season. They concede less than a goal a game. Uh, and I think Cheltenham probably are still an, an underrated team in League Two, even though they've been up there since the start of the season. Yeah, Cambridge are the only ones I want to point out again. You say Port Vale, I say Cambridge. Um, so at least we're too, true to form. But they, <laughs> yeah, a team who I think have, have had a couple of unlucky results in the last few weeks. And I think Calderwood's a, a very safe and capable pair of hands. I think they've got talented players in their squad and I'm sure they add to it in January. So another team I'm looking out for. John wants to know, if Wickham get a result at Portman Road this week against Ipswich, can they be seen as genuine promotion contenders? Or under, are the underlying numbers just not good enough? I suppose I'll add to that question. At what point can we specifically now, decide if they're genuine promotion contenders? Two weeks ago. They are contenders. Whether they get promoted or not, I don't know. But if you're on, if you play at 18, won 11, drawn 6, lost 1, scoring 28 goals, conceding 14 on 39 points, and you are 8 points clear of 3rd, then you are promotion contenders. It doesn't matter what the numbers say. It doesn't matter who you are, who your manager is, who your squad is, the size of your stadium, anything like that. They could still come 12th, but at this moment in time... Uh, there's no denying that that they are contenders to go up. Sort of feel like a the numbers. It's a rubbish aren't league as well. Terrible anyway, and exactly to that point, I don't think the other teams in the league are particularly playing at a massively high level. So it's very hard it's, to. As an Oxford fan, it's galling that to you know I know that we were very poor early in the season, but I just can't believe there's a team that's ten points above us. Mm. Like it's it. It baffles me, given that we you know just win every week, and yet they're still Wickham, just just flying so far in front. Incredible, absolutely incredible stuff. Uh, I'm going to take this one because something really upset me uh, that I saw at the end of last week. Grimsby 
Uh, Andy asks, with Grimsby relieving Michael Jolly of his role, who do you think could get Grimsby back on track? I'm more or less going to ignore the question in order to vent my uh, distaste at what something that the owner said. Talking about Michael Jolly leaving, and we, I think, all know by now that it was linked to an, uh, an outburst with a lot of swearing uh, aimed at the local media, who Jolly had a very difficult relationship with, a very, very unprofessional thing to do and perhaps given the content of his diatribe not that surprising that he left his job but the owner Fenty when talking about it afterwards and kind of trying to justify it to some extent said success generally comes very quickly if it's going to come at all and very rarely does success follow year after year of incremental improvement I would say that's one of my least favourite things a chairman, a custodian of a football club has ever said. Essentially laughing in the face of incremental improvement, something that is the bedrock of so many EFL success stories over well, all time, but certainly out of the teams that we talk about and have talked about over the last few years, a team like Accrington Stanley, a team like Burton, not talking about teams just in terms of title wins or promotions, but incremental improvement that helps a team grow, helps a team improve and helps show that fan base uh, a better footballing life, I suppose, a better quality of, of footballing life. The fact that he says success generally comes very quickly if it's going to come basically gives me no confidence that he is a chairman who can and will appoint a manager that will take Grimsby to the top of League Two uh, and beyond. And I think that's sad because I want chairman who can and will do that. So to answer the actual question, Ali, um, I'm going to uh, have a quick look at the odds. And there's a really interesting name in its second favourite now. I mean, Kevin Nolan's been the favourite for about a week and a half now. And I guess it wouldn't be much of a surprise to see him turn up. But former Oldham caretaker Pete Wilde is now second favourite of 4-1. to one. Mm who is a guy who last season took over Oldham twice and they were disproportionately good for both <laughs> of those spells. Um, he won uh, eight of his seven, 17 games, which given how incredibly bad they were, is absolutely staggering that he managed that. He left in the summer and went to Halifax in the National League, who are currently fourth. So there's a bit of evidence to suggest that Pete Wilde might be quite an interesting character. I mean, he certainly is. We we, see, we saw from his time at Oldham that he was definitely an interesting character. Um, but he might have a little bit of something about him and that could be quite an interesting appointment if they do go for him. And last but not least, Max asks, as a neutral EFL fan, which stadiums slash teams would you most recommend visiting? I've seen Forest, Ipswich and Cambridge United play recently. I'm looking for inspiration on where to go next. George, you've been to a fair few grounds already this season. You're at Southend on the weekend. Would you recommend Max goes to Southend? Yeah, it was actually quite fun. I mean, it depends where you live, I guess. I, mean, I live in London, so it was very easy to get there. Um, and some nice pubs in town near the stadium and a decent away end as well. My my least favourite away day I'll start with is AFC Wimbledon because the away terrace is down one side of the pitch and if you're at the wrong end, you just basically can't see what's going on the other side. And it's, um, yeah, I recommend if you're going to Kings Meadow, you should probably go um, with a, a club who has a small away following. Um, that'll probably help. 
but for a good away day what's my favorite away i've had some very good trips to crawley again it's accessible and it's easy and there are some decent or there are some fun pubs nearby pompey's always a good one uh, I, I like the clear distinction between decent and fun pubs not yeah. the same thing but then it's i think there's also accessibility is important like wickham yeah it's a pain to get you know you can go into town and it's fine but then you have to get a bus there and a bus out and it's all just a bit of a you know oxford is actually i mean oxford is probably the worst away day in the whole efl sadly <laughs> Um, as much as I love us, it's uh, hard to argue. It's hard to argue. I haven't I, I given mean, any I, good I, answers here. We had a. It was helped by the match experience Leeds against West Brom, uh, and it's an easy answer. But I would suggest going to Ellen Road if yeah. anyone hasn't been to Ellen Road. I think probably uh, given that this is the last season at Griffin Park, and given its famous terrace, which is a, a a lovely way to watch Championship football, I would suggest a trip to Brentford as well for anyone who hasn't been to Bees. Yeah, and I would also say Plymouth is a cracker. Um, cool stadium, fun city that you probably wouldn't go to unless you're going there for football. Um, fun for a day or a night out, recommended. And last but not least, we have to say this, we've got a great, great, great friend of the pod who's absolutely obsessed with away days at Hull City. He can't think <laughs> of a better away day in the country than Hull. Now, I haven't experienced it, so I can't speak for him. But if anyone's going to Hull and needs some recommendations... Uh, we've got a mate who can provide that, so get in touch if need be. Hull City, a wonderful EFL away day. Um, hopefully we've got a few of our own coming up, but this week we're away in Spain. Alicante, Valencia, uh, we're looking forward to 20-degree weather, nice golf courses, uh, and some planning for the future of Not The Top 20 podcast because uh, we're happy, I suppose, with the way things are going, content to some extent but always looking to grow, always looking to improve. So hopefully we can continue to offer top-level EFL analysis and content in as many different ways as possible, but certainly in pod terms, we appreciate all of your support. We appreciate you guys who listen every single week, those of you who drip in and out occasionally, all of you who interact with us on social media at NTT20pod. If you want to follow our trip to Spain, that's on Instagram, at NTT20pod. We'd love to hear from you, see you there. And otherwise, we'll talk again in the second half of the week to preview the weekend. Enjoy the week.